0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> I was going to give one talk tonight that I had in mind, but um, <clears throat> a couple of days ago, short, I said, no, 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 give them this one. So, uh, And uh, last night, Howie said he was giving you the good news. Well, this is a follow-up to, uh, to the good news. The title of this talk, since Steve wanted me to let you know to fill it in if you wanted for the, uh, the recordings, is uh, Buddha Dharma as a Path of Happiness. <clears throat> I've been talking a lot about this in the last few years and uh, exploring it within my own practice and and sharing the good news with, with others. Um, and I started exploring it because um, I saw that uh, sometimes people can be, and myself included, can be um, uh, very... Dedicated in practice, but get very serious at times in practice. And uh, this is not about cultivating grimness. The, the idea is to develop real happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. As uh, the Dalai Lama starts out his, his book, uh, The Art of Happiness, the first line, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book, isn't it? (laughs) Because if we we really find happiness, then uh, where happiness really lies, then all the the goodness in us can be expressed, felt, and shared with others and actually awaken that in them as well. Uh And the Buddha said, if you go for the highest happiness, then all the other happinesses Will follow. <clears throat> when I started doing this practice um, many years ago, uh, I came. Ac- I had a, 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 a key juncture early on. This I mentioned. That first summer at, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, at, uh, in 1974, uh, at uh, Naropa, where I was taking this. Class by, with uh, with Joseph Goldstein, and um, I'm a by nature a kind of passionate person. Uh, I was very fortunate to get passionate about something that chilled me out a little bit, but uh, I can get intense about things. And um, in those days, I was a, a major sports. Not, uh, particularly around uh, basketball. I was a, a season ticket holder to uh, the New York Knicks in their glory days. If you are an old basketball fan, you might know the days of uh, Walt Frazier and uh, Dave DeBuscher and Willis Reed. Earl the Pearl was my favorite player, in case you're an old fan. And I was uh, this one day wearing my Knicks t-shirt and this thought came to me in the middle of the meditation that disturbed me so much, I went running up to Joseph. At the, it was the first time I ever spoke to Joseph. He was kind of like this awesome <laughs> guy. And I said, listen, I've got a serious question for you. Um, I'm a season ticket holder to the Knicks. LAUGHTER Am I gonna? If I really get into this, because I was just starting to really see, wow, this is this is this could hold the key to real happiness. But uh, if I really get into this, am I gonna go to Madison Square Garden and watch the game and say, "Nice shot, (laughs) Frazier. Good move, good move, Havlicek. Okay, just go back and forth like that." Because I wasn't ready to sign on if that was where it was heading. And uh, he assured me that I would still have my enthusiasm. I just might get over the losses a little bit sooner. And that was the perfect answer for me. So I just went for it and, and dove in. Uh, and I did become passionate about practice. And this has been my, the best thing that... I've ever encountered, which is why I'm so grateful to be able to share it with others. But even that, even though I thought I understood practice, at times I would get very serious, you know, enlightenment or bust, or, and as you're, and sometimes I felt like I was going to bust. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're sitting there just trying so hard to be mindful, and um, it can feel both solemn and uh, and heavy at times it did for me anyway and i uh, i saw that um, there was something that was that i was i was getting caught in the teachings and um, that i was misunderstanding the teachings and somehow for a period of time i was confusing the end of suffering with the end of living and uh, I didn't feel that I could really allow my, my joy to be expressed. And this is not just a, a blind alley that I went through. It's something that sometimes people uh, can get confused by. And it's not, it's, not, um, uh, it's not so far-fetched that this happens because we're told to look and see what has meaning in life. And if you take a look, you'll see that um, the game isn't what we're told will bring us happiness. And one very key aspect of the practice I want to share with you, one really valued and important um, understanding is the understanding uh, known as Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. And Samvega is translated by uh, one uh, brilliant translator, uh, uh, Tanajan Tanisaro, who says, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived a chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. This is a a very um, key perspective to come to terms with. And the operative phrase in there is the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived but sometimes we can miss that part and just think oh it's all meaningless what's the point you, you know, you're born, you suffer then you die, so what? You know? but that's not the whole picture here and in fact here's what we're usually up against, this is what we're told is happiness and I like sharing this ad Uh, that expresses the the conditioning that we all go through. This ad, somebody gave it to me a while ago, is called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman draped in gold. It's a two-page ad. I'll read the the first page and then you get to see her in a moment. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And here's the second part. Let's see here. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures... Count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. <laughs> the only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold.
1: <laughs>
0: brilliant, isn't it? Uh, in, uh, the Buddha was talking about desires 2,500 years ago, but now it's, it's become a high art, fanning our desires. And according to one uh, uh, brilliant uh, uh, social... social um, Observer uh, Kali Lassen, I think his name is, in uh, Culture Jam, he says that the average American gets three thousand microjolts of this kind of message every day. Every day, unless you're on retreat, you probably got a few, a lot fewer here. No billboards, no media, no commercials. You no know, walking down the street and saying, this, this, this is going to make you happy, this is going to make you happy. So, at life as it's normally lived, this is not where real happiness lies. And to understand some Vega, we have to kind of have a radical turn to see just what well-being and happiness is about. But, as I say, it can run into some uh, blind alleys. And I want to share with you one of my favorite passages from Ajahn Sumedho um, that, has he been mentioned? Yeah, when we said, it's like this. He's the one who says, it's like this. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, particularly, which he's a a monk, a monastic in, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) And that's a classical practice. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selflessness of existence. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us, People who can't see see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, though, you find you you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So... As I went exploring, looking at the teachings and seeing, well, what does the Buddha say about happiness? Where is real happiness? I saw many, many um, brilliant inquiries into the nature of, of happiness that can be employed in a very practical way that I've been uh, enjoying sharing these last few years. Joy, you know, one of those buildings is Metta, Mudita, sorry, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Joy is one of the four divine abodes. It is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment, by the way. And there is many other uh, kinds of expressions of joy um, pamoja gladness sukha happiness upeka peace contentment so i wanted to look and see well what what is that what are the teachings about happiness and how can we cultivate them and um, i looked and saw a few particular teachings that I found very inspiring. One is looking at the um, the wise, what's called the wise efforts. You've heard that expression, wise or right effort. Well there's technically four aspects to wise effort. There's one, guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. That is don't put yourself in temptation's way. Right. Second overcoming unwholesome states when they have arisen, which is a lot what we're doing here when you're feeling confused or doubtful or fear or fearful or sad. there's ways to work with that that either allow you to process it wisely, not be afraid of it, or have antidotes that can uh, that can uh, shift your, uh, your contracted mind state. So that's two aspects, overcoming and guarding against unwholesome states. Then there's two other aspects of wise effort, developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen, which means all the kinds of practices that we do here. Mindfulness develops wholesome states, Meta practice, where you're actually programming the mind, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. You are cultivating, even if you're not feeling it to begin with, just putting those intentions in the mind and the heart. After a while, they do develop. Developing generosity, as, as we spoke about before, and lots of different wholesome states. So we can d- develop and cultivate them. And then the fourth aspect of wise effort, is maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they have arisen. He says this is a good thing when you're feeling a quality of well-being to maintain it and even increase it. This is not un-Buddhist. This is skillful. But you might say, well, it can sound a whole lot like grasping. Well, I want to make it even more. It's not so much, as soon as you're trying to create a state and, or hold on to it, you'll the contraction of mind will work against you. But it's, it's to allow it and to fully experience it. This is how you can maintain and increase it, to not miss it. So when I saw that developing and increasing wholesome states when they've arisen, that made sense to me, okay. And then there's, uh, I came across a not so well-known discourse that jumped out at me when I saw it a few years ago, where the Buddha is saying about these wholesome states um, that there is a gladness that's connected with them. And that that gladness is, he calls, an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. And he gives the example, there's a few different examples in this discourse. He says, um, one particular one, while you're in the middle of a generous act, he advises think to yourself, reflect, oh, I'm being generous now. And he says, as you reflect on it, that will gladden the heart, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. And that gladness overcomes ill will and hostility. That gladness connected with what's wholesome overcomes ill will and hostility. Now, he's not saying, if you're in the middle of a generous act, to identify with it and say, hey, I hope everybody sees how generous I am. You know? You know, check it out, being pretty generous here. No, 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 that's, that's not the idea. He says, you don't have to take, don't take ownership of the feeling, but just feel how good it is as it moves through you, as that impulse of generosity, or loving kindness, or compassion, or any wholesome state, as it moves through you, feel how good it feels. Don't miss it. And as you're attentive to it, that in itself allows it to be experienced on an even deeper level. So, I began to look at the various wholesome states that are talked about in these teachings and see about cultivating them consciously and being present for them as, as they're experienced. And I'd like to offer some of them to you tonight. And as I think you, maybe um, you've heard or some people know, and there's going to be information out on the table, uh, I, I lead this uh, course called Awakening Joy, which is basically about cultivating wholesome states and being present for them. So I'm going to give you the 10-month the course in about uh, 25 minutes, compressed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the key to um, to the whole experience of developing wholesome states is inclining the mind in that direction. In one discourse, the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Can you argue with that? Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of your mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon how everybody is going to disappoint you, you'll probably be confirming your theory. If you frequently think and ponder upon how, uh, how frustrating life is, that becomes your inclination of mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon how good life is or how blessed you are or how good it feels to be kind, that becomes more and more the inclination of mind. And as uh, I think we mentioned it here, I forget if I said, but the the classic neuroscience research backs this up where the, the famous line is neurons that fire together, wire together. So we're inclining our minds towards wholesome states. And anybody at any time can shift their inclination of mind. This is the... um, the know, there's a movement, probably you're familiar with, the positive psychology movement, started by this fellow Martin Seligman, who wrote a, a great book, Authentic Happiness. This is how the positive psychology movement started. Seligman writing. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children I'm really not at all good with children. I'm goal-oriented, time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. This was for me an epiphany, nothing less. (laughs) Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch, and I'd spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul, and the last 10 years being a nimbus cloud in a house full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the start of the positive psychology movement. We can change at any time. I let me see if I here. Yeah. Beautiful note. I, I was with with uh, working with somebody who was having a really hard time in their their uh, work, their work meditation. It was it was re- it's it's a demanding job and it was hot and sweaty and there was just a whole lot of aversion that they were they were feeling. And um, uh, they, they wanted to know any ways to um, to work with it. And we explored and said, well, this is how it is. So you've got two choices. Either wish it were different or see if there's anything good that you can experience in it. Are there any moments where you're not miserable? Are there times that you can, that you can see, oh, here I am serving or whatever it is? And she came up with, with some some thoughts, and she wrote this note. It worked. My work meditation was an entirely new experience today. Sure, I was still hot and sweaty and my back was sore, but approaching it with a joyful heart made all the difference in the world. The atmosphere in the work area seemed lighter, and there literally seemed to be less work to do. I think I Only finished a few minutes earlier, but it felt shorter and joyful. Feeling aversion and even more to the resistance and self-doubt in response to my aversion had made a much more difficult task on the first day. It was starting to get lighter. We just need to decide. That's our end of the deal with intention. Just decide Not that everything's going to be just fantastic, but to be open to well-being, to do our part to open to happiness and well-being. And on a more profound level, we can decide our intention, as the Buddha said, for the highest happiness. What really speaks to us, what really motivates us, can inform everything we do, uh, and I had uh, an experience I've shared at times on retreat before uh, just to um, show how this operated in me and maybe to invite you, maybe to get in touch with something similar for yourself. I was uh, on my way to Asia where I was part of a, this conference and my plane was um, rooted to stop in Frankfurt. And when I told a friend that I was stopping in Frankfurt, uh, she said, oh, you should see Mother Mira, who is this Indian, sage, holy woman like that. And I said, okay, maybe I'll do it. And she said, no, 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 you should see Mother Mira. I said, okay. And then I found out that Mother Mira uh, granted the boon of whatever you wish for, she would make come true. I said, okay, I'll see Mother Mira. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I set up my itinerary to stop there for a couple of nights. And I go into uh, the, the first night, the darshan, about oh, 125 people or so in this room, all silent. We're all meditating, and Mother Mira comes in. And she doesn't say a word. It's a great gig. No Dharma talks, no nothing. She just is quiet and emanates this really nice energy. And each person goes up one at a time. There's like an on-deck circle. And then when you're ready, you, you go and are in front of her. And as you're in front, first you're, you put your head down. And she does something, I was explained, unraveling karmic knots in your brain, in your mind, or in your body. I don't know what happens. And then she lets go and then you look right at her like into this ocean of eternity for a little while. You're both looking at each other and she closes her eyes and that's the end. Okay, About 45 seconds. I timed it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, as I was sitting there, I thought, uh, well, wait a second. I, I don't want to run up and be the first one. I wanted to get clear on what I really wanted. So I just took my time. As one after another, people went up and I said, what do I really want? Do I want more stuff? No, they, that all comes and goes like the gold shivers do i want do i want another experience no they all come and go to what do i really want what's really important to me and i waited and waited and then finally it became clear and i sat in front of her she did whatever she did and i looked in her eyes all the while just repeating my highest intention and it was like seared into my into my heart I don't know if she has magical powers but in that focused heightened awareness I really got what mattered to me and that was 15 years ago and it's I say it every day I say it before I give a talk I say it when I'm meeting with with somebody for counseling, to just get clear, oh, this is what matters. Now I ask you, if you were in my position and were in front of someone who could grant your deepest heart's desire, whether somebody like Mother Mira or some magical being (coughs) who said, if you tell me what's really important to you, you'll get it. If you don't, then just, you'll take your chances. Good luck to you. But tell me, and it can be yours. I'd like you just for a moment to close your eyes and put yourself in that position. What really matters to you? What's your highest intention? Listen to your heart. And if it feels like something worthwhile, see if you can get in touch with the decision to do your part to make that happen. Everything starts with our intention. It's the seed of all karma, as the Buddha said, intending, I tell you, is karma through body, speech, and mind. As soon as you incline your mind in a certain way and envision it, then it can possibly manifest. There's a Tibetan saying, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. So, having your inclination to go for hopefully what real happiness is about, real well-being is about. Then there's other aspects to develop this, uh, this possibility, other wholesome states. One that we've been talking about since the beginning of the retreat is mindfulness. Mindfulness happens to be, I think I mentioned it uh, the first the first day uh, or the first talk, mindfulness, the Buddha says, is the most wondrous, most wonderful way to overcome all sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, end pain, anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. Just in the moment that you're mindful, there's a sense of completeness, of not needing anything extra to make it a better moment, not needing any to take anything away, it's just seeing clearly, and that in itself is a very connecting, uplifting, whole, wholesome state. Happens also to be the one mental factor out of 52 mental factors in Buddhist psychology. That's kind of like the deck that we're dealt. Everybody has these capacities, 52 mental factors. Sometimes I wonder if everybody has a full deck, but, but that's the idea, right? That the one factor that cultivates all the wholesome states and diminishes, weakens all the unwholesome states is mindfulness. It's the one unique factor that does that. So it's a very potent thing, because in the moment that you're mindful and you're not grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant. You're cultivating a capacity to let go, to be open, to meet the moment with loving kindness, to not identify with experience. It's a very profound thing. And it also cuts through all the confusion that usually runs runs us. And, uh, since uh, Howie had a a uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, I thought I'd pull one out. I just happened to have it with me, talking about mindfulness. First frame, here I am, happy and content, Calvin says. Second frame, but not euphoric. <laughs> Third frame, so I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. <laughs> Fourth frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. And that's what mindfulness does. It cuts through the the confusion, the thinking, the stories in our mind to see things clearly. And mindfulness actually also amplifies as I said a moment ago, those wholesome states when they're here. So I'll move on now to a few of the more of the other wholesome states. One can think of mindfulness as an appreciation of the moment. Besides seeing seeing the, 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 the things that need to be changed, mindfulness is an openness, a gratefulness for this moment. There's a beautiful book uh, Brother David Steindl Rast wrote called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. He's a Christian contemplative and it's all about Mindfulness, being present for your life, that is the essence of gratitude. Gratitude is a very potent ally of well-being because what it does is you can have a wider perspective to hold all the sorrows that come through. This is not about closing your eyes and thinking, oh yes, everything is fine, you know, life is is always wonderful. No, no, no. We we're, we're talking about the truth here, and the first noble truth in Buddha Dharma is there's suffering in life. But if you only focus on the fact that there's suffering in life, that's just part of the story. As you might know the phrase there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And to not miss the joys, not miss all the blessings in your life, that widens the container and then you start seeing all the goodness around you, and that can hold all the sorrows. One of my, my main practices for many years that I, I think I say on every retreat is to look for what's good. This is an instruction that I uh, understood from someone who's a very uh, major influence uh, on me, uh, an Indian guru named Neem Karoli Baba, from, um, if you know the book, Be Here Now, Ram Dass' Guru. He's also known as uh, Maharaji. And he said, the best form to worship God is every form. And basically he said, keep on looking for the good. Because as you look for what's good, you will find it. And that's the way it works. Not only will you find it, but you draw it out from around you. If you are in a room and somebody comes in and they are looking and you can feel they're looking at everything that's wrong with you, all your flaws, and judging you up and down. How do you feel? Sorry, I might have just bummed you out from the, from the, <laughs> from the, from the talk. How do you feel? You feel flawed, don't you? Exposed, small. You know. Somebody else might come into that room, know all your flaws, and just see how beautiful you are. How do you feel? Beautiful. It's like it draws it out of you. And we have a tremendous power to influence our environment by just looking for the good. Not that you can find it all the time, but it's in there. We're all Buddhas. We all want to be loved. We all want to be safe. We all want to love when I was a school teacher, I was a school teacher for no, many years in, uh, in New York mostly. And at the beginning of the year, I made it my challenge, the one task I set for myself, was to find the key to every kid's heart, I could. And some kids, you just had to wear shades, they're so dazzling, you know, their sparkle and their delight. And others, it took a little bit of effort because they didn't learn how to get the attention that they wanted through uh, ways that were, um, that were supportive to the, the class and they would be disruptive or whatever. But in moments of quiet, in moments of, of, of um, a different setting, every kid, every kid, wanted to be seen for their goodness. And for many years, it's been, I offer it to you as one of the best practices you could have. Gratitude for all the blessings, the Buddha has this beautiful discourse, the blessing supreme, he talks about one blessing after another to reflect on all the blessings in your life. As you start to look for it, I think I said last last time about the satellite dish, did I mention that here? Did I, know? I didn't. Is this one one uh, uh, Tibetan uh, uh, teacher who says that gratitude and appreciation for for the the lineage and the teachings is like having your satellite dish out. And as you open up with gratitude, it's like you are there to receive more and more of the blessings. Whereas if you're kind of saying mm, this is wrong and that's wrong, you know, the contraction doesn't let all those blessings in. So in that openness of gratitude, everything can be experienced in a deeper way. One of the the amazing uh, things that I've discovered that I've seen for myself is that it's possible to change even if you've been practicing another way for a long time. I'll share another story along the lines of Seligman, but... This is a little closer to home, particularly around gratitude. It's one of my favorite stories, if I can find it here. There it is. Um, A few years ago, uh, I was visiting my mom in, uh, she lives in LA, and uh, we've got a great relationship. And she's just turned 91. Last month, a few weeks ago, I was down there with her. And when she was, uh, this is two years ago, when she was 89, I, um, I went to uh, to visit her. I was there for a week, and I was doing a lot of writing about this stuff, and particularly I was writing about gratitude. And I, I took with me this journal called Greater Good. It's a, it's a great uh, cutting-edge research on well-being. I took it down with me and the issue was all about gratitude and all the research on the benefits of gratitude. Better for your immune system, uh, healthier, uh, more lasting relationships. Just you know, one after another is uh, amazing stuff. There's a really good book, by the way, called um, Thanks by Robert Emmons, who's one of the, the leading researchers on gratitude. Anyway, I shared all this research and she was very impressed. And I, she said, "Yeah, that sounds great." You know? But um, one thing I didn't—I forgot to mention—is that she uh, tends to see what's wrong and can complain, even though she knows that her life is is really blessed. But by admission, she is a worrier and sees where the problems are, and. Uh, I said, wouldn't that be great, Mom? She said, yeah, I know my life is blessed, but I've been doing it this way for a long time. And um, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's much hope for me right now. We were having this discussion while we were playing Scrabble, which we do a lot when I'm down there. She loves beating me. Uh, She's good. She's very good. And uh, I said, well, let's make a game out of it, Mom. It just kind of came through me. I said, what if every time you complained, I just reminded you to see it another way. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, suppose you say, oh, it's so cold today. And I would say, and? And you say, oh, and my life is very blessed. (laughs) And she said, okay, let's do it. We had the most amazing week. I had loads of opportunities. (laughs) And each time, you know, oh, the TV reception is not so good. And, oh, yeah, and my life is very blessed. (laughs) Well, something happened. We had such a good time. It was one of the best visits uh, 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 that we could recall and just got happier and happier. It was fun. We kept on laughing, right? I called her a lot when I got home, those first few days, to kind of keep the habit going. And a friend of, of ours, um, a friend of my sister's, was in on it, and she also uh, uh, reminded my mom a lot. My sister was away for three weeks, and when she came back, she said, what did you do to mom?
1: <laughs>
0: this is true. And I, I didn't know how things would, would unfold, but miraculously, this habit kept up. And seven months later, uh, she sent me uh, a birthday card, and it was my birthday, and we always exchange poems on our, birth, uh, our birthdays. So she wrote this amazing poem, and, which she often does, but this is one part of the poem that I have cherished so and like to share with people. Oh, and also, during that time, her eyesight, uh, she, was, uh, her eye, she was losing her eyesight, actually, the macular degeneration, which amazingly has reversed. She was lucky she has the, the kind that could be reversed. So now she's seeing okay, but not then. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I am happier than I have ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. So if at 89, somebody could change. Now, I mean, every conversation now, it's, it's, it's really one of the most joyful things in my life. Every conversation, I'm so blessed. I'm the luckiest person in the world. A couple of months ago, we were having this conversation, and, and she was you know, going on and on about how blessed she is. And I said, Mom, you're having so many positive thoughts. She said, I'm having so many positive thoughts, it's positively exhausting. You know? LAUGHTER she's got a great (laughs) sense of humor. Gratitude changes everything and I'd like just for a moment to invite you to see how this can work and use mindfulness. Take um, Take a few breaths and go inside and notice or reflect on some blessing in your life. Somebody who you're grateful to or something that you're grateful for. You might have an image of that person or that situation. And then express thanks silently to to either that person or to life. Thank you. And now let your awareness explore the landscape of gratitude. What does it feel like in there? In the body, in the mind? You now bring somebody else to mind, or some other <coughs> blessing circumstance. Have an image that connects you with it. Give thanks to that person, to life. Let your awareness take in that feeling of gratitude. Be mindful of that wholesome state. That's the idea to not only feel the the wholesomeness of it, but Know what it's like to feel good. Not just feel good, but feel what it's like to feel good. And just directing your attention deepens that um, and makes it more accessible. So there's, I I can see I'm not going to get through the the, the whole course, but I just want to briefly go through. um, uh, I'll do one more and name a few others a few other wholesome states that you can experience for yourself. One that that the Buddha talks of as the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. He says, acting with integrity. You know, we took the precepts here at the the beginning of the retreat. When we act aligned with our values, there is this real wholesomeness. And he has this one discourse. He says, there's lots of different happinesses. There's happiness of being free of debt. He was a very practical guy. <laughs> happiness of having enough to take care of yourself and your loved ones. There's the happiness that comes from being so um, prosperous and having good fortune that you can be generous with those around you. And the fourth in this particular list is what is this bliss of blamelessness where you are acting with complete integrity. And he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness in this discourse, the other three are not one sixteenth as potent a source of happiness. I don't know how he figured that out, (laughs) but that's what it says. And when you see, if you're not aligned with your values, you can't really appreciate all the blessings in your life. So when you act with integrity, let yourself feel, oh, this, is, this feels good. I'm taking the high road now. There's the, the happiness that comes from letting go, letting go of our stories or, or simplifying our life. There's a, a happiness that comes with um, feeling compassion and expressing our caring with others. There's a happiness that I want to particularly focus on in these last few minutes, that comes from loving-kindness. And particularly, loving-kindness, as we've been saying here, begins with loving ourselves. This is often not such an easy thing to do. It seems like everybody else might be worthy of our love, but often we're the last ones that we can uh, really... Tune into and give it to ourselves. Now, this is something I, I always find interesting and want to ask you. Suppose you met somebody who got your jokes, who had your taste, and understood your take on things, who really got it the way you see it. Right? How would you feel about meeting somebody like that? <laughs> Wouldn't you be ecstatic? Right? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through <laughs> your mind. One person that understands your take on life. The unfortunate thing is that they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be tickled pink. Where have you been all my life? Right? <laughs> So, the way to access this is really to see who you are. I love that there's this uh, expression that Einstein has. He caught, talks of an optical delusion of consciousness. It's just the perspective that we find ourselves looking from that we don't see the truth. So, I want to share um, a practice that I've found useful in my own metta practice. You know, the other day when I was saying, look at your noble qualities, get in touch with your, your own goodness. Um, that, that is the key. That's a key to the doorway of, of loving kindness. I was doing a loving kindness retreat, an extended one, and I was kind of feeling, I was okay. I wasn't beating myself up, but I wasn't really kind of like wowie-zowie feeling love for myself. I was patient with it. And then the thought came to me of somebody who I knew really loved me, right? And I thought, boy, it would be so much easier if I, if I saw what they saw. And then I thought to myself, well, what, are they saw? what do they see? Why do they love me? And that's what um, opened to this practice that I want to share with you. So close your eyes. And bring someone to mind or into your heart who you share a lot of love with. If possible, not a complicated relationship, but whatever, whoever comes to mind. It can be a pet, it can be a child. It, it, they are, they're just, pets are great, by the way. You know. But just some being that when you're with, your heart is open and you share this loving exchange, loving energy. And imagine they're right here, right with you. And for a few moments, just get a sense of that energy that flows between you. And now for a moment imagine inhabiting their reality and seeing from their perspective who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy hanging out with this person so much? Look at what qualities touch them about you. might be your kindness or your sincerity or your playfulness or whatever, all the things, look at all the things and really drink yourself in. Get who you really are. See if this person is worthy of kindness and love. And know that the more that this person is in touch with it, the more it can shine through for everybody else. And now, let your consciousness come right back inside your body, and from the inside, stay connected with those qualities. And send yourself some thoughts of well-wishing. May I or may this being open to all the happiness in their life, in in my life. May I feel all the love that's inside and share it well. May I connect with the peace that's right inside and express it in my life. See what it's like to wish yourself well from that understanding that you deserve it, really deserve it. And if you get a glimpse of it, let yourself feel how good it is to wish that for yourself. Let me ask, how many people got even a glimpse or more of their worthiness. Great. Then if your hand went up, you can't pretend anymore that you're not worthy. Of. And then it's just cultivating that and really feeling the wholesomeness of that. This is a source of real happiness. And as you keep on exploring and seeing who you are, you even see beyond those qualities on the outside to the essential goodness that comes through you. From where? Who knows? But you are an expression of life in its perfect form that's never been in the configuration that is there in you. And that is what the Buddha was pointing to when he talked about the highest happiness. Even beyond the relative goodness, there is uh, something beautiful and good. The divine, as Ajahn Sumedho talks about, the shining through of the divine and the more we quiet down and get beyond our thoughts, the more we see it and actually feel it. It's not even ours. Can we say, my unconditional love is better than your unconditional love? You know That doesn't make sense. My pure awareness is better than your pure awareness. It's just something quite mysterious and, uh, and divine shining through us. So that's the good news that what we're doing here is not just bearing up with pain in our knee or our wandering mind. We are actively cultivating a deep kind of happiness through all of these wholesome states, and the more we can be present for them, the more that we can attend to them, the more they are cultivated, inclining our mind that way, and this is a path of real happiness. As... uh, as Rumi says, keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. And I want to close with um, a favorite passage of mine by Shanti Deva about this miraculous path called The Miracle of Awakening. As a blind person feels... Upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about, scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a moment. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness.